Checking in though, I'm feeling good. You know, um, you know, this is a, a busy week for myself also. You know, as I mentioned, just came from Oakland from the California convening on advancing racial equity. This is a, a convention that happens yearly now where a bunch of local government people, city government people, people who work in government across the state come together and learn from each other and workshop with each other. And part of what I was able to do was co-present a workshop in partnership with folks from the mayor's office here in Sacramento 
on California reparations. Um, so I'm just fresh off that right now. I shot back up from Oakland, drove back right out, right out here. Um, I wouldn't miss this for the world. Um, and so I am feeling really good. It's been a busy week for myself too. And I'm looking forward to the Juneteenth, of course, but also looking forward to some chill, you know, some, some, some good energy and just enjoying the vibes this weekend coming, this three-day holiday weekend coming up. So I'm, I'm feeling really good. Man. It's good to hear. It's good yeah. to hear, man. Like, I'm glad to hear you guys both had a good week. I mean, I know I had a good week. Even though I'm one of those weird people, even when the week is kind of busy, that nonetheless, I'm having a good week. But I, I just like being in motion. I ain't yeah. gonna lie. Like, I'm, yeah. I, that's that ADHD in me. Like, when I'm sitting around and I have extra free time, I'm not the person like, oh, I'm so happy. I have nothing to do. Like, I'm more like, boom, boom, boom. I was in LA, Fresno, back here. Wow doing more work so I'm just I'm just happy I'm happy to be home but I'm more happy to still be doing it that momentum you call it you know but again like I said uh appreciate you guys for being here you know pleasure the pleasure's all mine thank you so thank you for having me no always I, I want to ask you like like let the people know who you are you know yeah. like where are you from yeah real shit so um, probably you could put the curse on this right? yeah you could <laughs> My grandma. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I will be sending it to my moms too. Yeah. I send everything to my moms. Like, you know, I'm this. Uh, shout out to Mom Dukes. You know what I'm saying? Shout out to the whole family. So, you know, Chris Larson, I, I am the president and lead organizer of Coalition for Justice Active in California. Uh, we are California's first only leading, so far as we know, grassroots statewide organization born just for reparation and comparative justice for African-Americans who descend from persons who were enslaved in the United States, or American treatment, whatever you want to call it. Um, I'm also a community organizing and policy manager at the Anti-Recidivism Coalition, ARC, which does a lot of great work here in California, working to end mass incarceration by helping brothers and sisters who come out of prison, also working with brothers and sisters who are still in prison, within, within the prison every single week. Um, and so, that's part of what I do. I'm also a founder creator of Sac Black Big, which is Sacramento County's largest, most active database, digital marketing platform, marketing platform for Sacramento County Black owned businesses. We serve thousands of black owned businesses today. I am doing some other stuff too. I'm really from New York City. Okay. Yeah, I can probably hear that already a little bit. Born and raised in Manhattan, Brooklyn, been in California since 2015. And you do, you do. yeah, new issue, yeah, yeah, for sure. You know what I'm definitely, yeah, since middle 2015, I've been here. What, how you, how you, how you enjoy California? I love, I love California. Uh, you know, actually, my pops is from California. My pops from California, from San Diego. My mom is from New York. Oh, wow. um, and so I, I, I love California. I wouldn't, you know, I, this is my second home. You know what I'm saying, um, there's never, never, never ever gonna replace New York City. But this is my this is my second home. I love the weather. You know, I, I was gonna say the big line right now: the weather, the women, and the other stuff too. You know? <laughs> um, but you know, this is um, this is my second home. Yeah. And and I I I think California is such a beautiful state. You know what I mean? From top to bottom, you got everything here. You got you got beaches and hot weather. You got snow if you want to see snow. You got mountains. You got ocean. You got you know, desert, you know, you got everything. It's dope to hear somebody away from California put respect on California's name. Oh, yeah. I know a lot of Californians are like, oh, man, 
New York is like that too. New Yorkers are like that too. Like we, if you go to New York, New Yorkers be complaining about New York mm-hmm. inside New York, but take us outside New York and we like leave right. New York is the best place. So yeah, <laughs> like, uh, that happens a lot. Yeah, I feel like those are those are the two places. I mean, it really is polar opposites because literally, like you see, here's somebody from New York, they love New York, or oh, yeah. somebody from California, they love California. Like, I, and everybody who lives in the middle is trying to go to one of those mm-hmm. either two places. So mm-hmm. it's pretty cool, but. Yeah. What what brought you out here in 2015? Was, was, was there an event? Nah, not so much an event. Uh, well, I was I was work so I worked for uh, a national nonprofit before I came out here uh, called Healthy Listen. Um, and I was doing fundraising and also um, I was helping to do administrative work back on the East Coast. And the, the the nonprofit though had work that was going on and projects that were going on up and down the East Coast and also out west too. Um, and so that was part of why I came out here. I was actually coming out here. I want to say every month, but it was at least a few times a year I was already coming out to the West Coast. Okay. Um, and then also originally too, you know, just to keep it on with you, um, uh, I was, I met um, my my ex in D.C. actually at an event for the nonprofit in 2011. And we started a long distance thing, and she was from Sacramento. And I, you know, I, I eventually, you know what I'm saying, came out here, um, you know, so that was the, I think the primary motivation, even though I was coming out here, like I said, you know, on a fairly regular basis out here. Um, after that, so like, you know, um, you know, it didn't work out, you know what I'm saying? Um, you know, it's, it's like sometimes things do yeah. or don't, um, but, you know, definitely know our feelings, you know what I'm saying, much love, you know, um, yeah. and sometimes, you know, people in your life for a reason and for a season. Um, and I wouldn't be out here doing the work that I'm doing right now without that. That's pretty neat. So, so you know, I, I, I gotta always pay respect because, you know, I would be doing a lot of great work on the East Coast for sure. You know, I was working, uh, I was working in, in and out uh, homeless shelters in New York City. That's part of the work that I, that I did for the nonprofit. That's what Healthy West USA did primarily. Primarily managed um, nonprofit, excuse me, homeless shelters, um, transitional housing. Um, we, I think we ran the entire domestic violence hotline for the borough of Brooklyn at one point. Um, so that was part of our work. And so that's that's what I was doing out there. So I was going to be doing that work. And I would like to say doing some great stuff out there too. Um, but you know, part of the reason I'm out here is because you know, I met somebody and, and they were trying to As you said, you were doing I want I want to ask you to take that back. It seems like you've always had towards like, I guess you say social work. Where, 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 is that, where does that stem from? You know, I, that's not a question I get a lot. That's a good question because I, w- I tell people sometimes that like I was some sort of socially active really since high school, I would say that. But that wasn't really like, it wasn't really like a, a, a intentional choice. It was just because of like how I grew up and where I grew up that you sort of forced to be involved because things that was going on in the neighborhood, where the, you know, some of, some of my first memories are like, you know, police, you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying, fucking with us and, you know, treating us bad. And so, like, then you are like, well, you know, what are you gonna do about it, you know? Yeah. And so, those, those, are, those are some of my first memories, you know, of my uncles and my family members and people that was older than me getting into beef with the police, you know, where, you know whether it be because, you know, you know, bullshit, you know, our music is too loud or, yeah. Bullshit, you know, just to fuck with us. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what are you gonna do about it? And I 
grew up watching them like say no we're not like we're not gonna be pushed around by nobody out there it's our neighborhood um, and so i grew up watching i also grew up in a family where you know, my mom is one of seven so i had a lot of aunts uncles around a lot of cousins around i was older too and they were very i wouldn't i don't even know if it's the right way to be active because they wasn't like you know running for office or like that but they had they were very politically opinionated Okay. Like they has, they always was talking about some shit, like what's wrong, what's going on, etc. So I was exposed to it early. Uh, I was exposed to social um, justice, if you want to call it that, early. And then in 20, I was like 25 or something, something like 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 that. I was homeless. You know what I'm saying like I was unhoused. You know what I'm saying I was living in. At first I was like living in the subways and shit, living in the streets and shit. And then I was, then I made my way into some of the homeless shelters in Manhattan. And then, you know, it was so much going wrong in the shelters. Actually, one of the, one of the first shelters I went in, it was so bad in there. Um, and this is like one of the intake shelters. So like you, it's like where they take you when you first got nowhere to go. You know what I'm saying? Like, so, and it's where they send you, like if you just got out of, prison or jail, you have nowhere to go. Like, I remember I'd be in there with, with dudes like this guy out of jail. I said, this guy out of jail, I mean, like, two hours ago. Oh. Like, two hours ago. Fresh. Like, like, still right, right. And they and they in a homeless shelter, you know what I'm saying? And so, but it was, it was so bad, we was being so mistreated there. It felt like we was being criminalized for, for being, like, poor. So, one day, she got so bad, um, I don't know, you know where I got the idea, but, like, I have a, I think I remember something called a petition. And so like one day, like I was up, like, I was in my dorm, there was, there was six of us sleeping in the government dorm. I mean, we take community showers with everybody. And so uh, one day I was like, man, this is fucked up. So I like, I remember something called a petition. And so I grabbed a blank piece of paper somehow, like got a pencil, I, I did one line like this at the top, one line like this in the middle. At the top I put name, this side. Other side I put a signature or sign. And then on the like on the space I was on the top top, I just wrote like, you know, you know, this and this and that is fucked up in here. Sign your name here. And so, and then I took it to the lunch line or the, the dinner line that evening. And the dinner line, you got a line up, it's like a hundred dudes lining up for for the, for the dinner. And I went from person to person. Yo, ah, uh, sign your name. Ah, uh, first day I had like a hundred people sign. I took this shit to the um to the to the executive director of the shelter like a couple of days later or something. And I was like, here, yeah, this is what's going on. This is what people are saying. You know, we got, you know, we got, are we supposed to be here for three weeks? It's supposed to be an intake shelter. We're supposed to be here processing and sit somewhere that's better gonna serve us um, to get us out. And I was in there for like two months, you know what I'm saying? And like brothers in there is in there for like two months. You, you, you're supposed to get a medical screening to make sure you're right. People is waiting a month and a half to get a medical screening. Um, the food is, I mean, not even edible. It was a joke in there, a running joke that like you gonna lose thirty pounds in here because, and not like in a good way. You know what I'm saying? It's because you're not, you're not eating. Not because you know right? Not because you want to. It's because you're not eating. Um, but even with all of that, like trauma and bad shit, it was so much like brotherhood and like and like connection between the, the people in there. You know, people really started looking out for for each other. Uh, it was a lot of wild bashing going on there too, you know, um, and it's kind of like, but 
so um, so that so that was part of my more intentional social justice work and then basically I got transferred out of that show so before that we had made some changes though like there was things that started to happen they started cleaning the shit up they cleaning the place up regularly yeah. uh, we had a, we set up a partnership with or we was working on a partnership with the New York City Public Library to get some books in the library um, you know we got the NYPD to stop raiding our rooms in the middle of the night and they, the NYPD were kicking the door in the middle kicking our door like don't even say the NYPD and just start dragging people out searching people and shit um, oh, wow. so yeah and I, I remember I, I, went, I went down to like I went down to like to, to speak to the captain, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and I was in there barking on him. And he was like, you know what, young young, young man, you missed your call and you should have been a lawyer. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, whatever. Just tell him, don't stop, you know what I'm saying? Stop doing that. Um, and so they started making some some, some changes. Um, and then I got transferred out of there to a place called Ward's Island. And Ward's Island is a very small island right in between the island of Manhattan and like Queens, Queens in the Bronx. Is the island like you had to catch a ferry to get there? Or like you had to, you you had to take a bus over a bridge. Oh, okay, okay. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. You had to take a bus over a bridge, the thirty-five bus. You had to go uptown to East Harlem, one hundred twenty-fifth on Lexington Avenue. Get off on the four-five train and make them across across the street. Take the thirty-five bus, and thirty-five only goes to Ward's Island. Okay. Um, and <laughs> so, um, so I was transferred out there. Yeah. And then, you know, but that's where like a lot of shelters are too. So I was trying to another shelter out there. Okay. And it was at that shelter that, you know, it, that shelter was run by an organization called Help USA. Okay. And some of the people who worked for Help USA, you know, saw me and was like, you know, um, we like what you're doing. Um, do you want to work for one of the programs just as a volunteer first? And I was like, yeah, you know what I'm saying? I, and I started working with the programs. It was like a sports for you, sorry, not, not a sports for you, a, a sports program that they was running inside the shelter to help, um, you know, help people who's in the shelter have alternatives to, to do, at, you know, when they're not working, yes. you know, have positive alternatives. Um, so the program was called Street Soccer USA. Oh, wow. um, and so like they would use sports to like help us have shit to do. And so, you know, I, I started volu volunteering with them, and eventually, you know, I, I had found a job and shit. So I was working, like going to work, and still living in the shelter at the same time. So, yeah. Um, and it was fucked up because what they do is once once they once they know that you got a job, they try to get you out of it fast. You know what I'm saying? So like, once we got a job, like they they did a foul on me. Like they moved me from like I had like I had like a single room at that point. Like, it was like like a, a room. It's like maybe like this, you know what I'm saying? It's smaller though. Yeah. Um, but like we had single showers, I had to come out like I had a single so it was like a better thing, right? Um and it was better for my health and I was like I found a job and shit, but once they found out that I had a job, they tried to like well like they didn't try. They moved me out of the single room and they put me in a room with nine other people to like make me uncomfortable and shit. Oh wow. Right, to like yeah, because I have a job. So like you got a job, why are you here now? You know what I'm saying? Uh, while I was trying to stack up some money, and like, you know, it's, 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 it's expensive as hell, you know what I'm saying? Just because you got a job, I mean, you can afford a place to be immediately. Um, so is this the same place that hired you? Like, help this, help, so, is it help, H-E-L-P? Help, yeah, H-E-L-P-U-S-A, yeah, help. So help they USA. hired you, and then, but they forced you in the, in the shelter itself, kind of to an uncomfortable position. So they hired me later, 
after I left, um, <laughs> after I left um, later, later, later on, um, and I was, you know, now when I left though, I found the, I found the place, and they, I'm keep it real, like they helped me too, like they helped me find a place. Um, they had volunteers for I think it was, uh, what's the? It's not Teach for America. It's um, just that uh, that. It's not Teach for America. It's the, um, is it America AmeriCorps? Oh, okay. AmeriCorps. So they had volunteers from AmeriCorps who were really, really dope, were mentors, and they helped me get on my feet. And but I was still volunteering, going back into the shelters though, like every week, even after even after I left, I was going back and volunteering. So I was still going out the wars out, you know what I'm saying after work and all that, just to you know help out. And then at a certain point, I found another job, and then they was like, yo. I can want to give you a job like yeah. in our downtown office. Uh, I worked uh, on Hanover Square, which is like Wall Street area. And then I was down there for the years. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Uh, and then that's how I you know, continued, basically made my way out here. Okay. So I want to add, first of all, calling that situation tough. It's probably keeping it light. That sounds <laughs> like. Like I said, to be working and still be homeless is yeah, it was it's, it's, it's it's a, a jarring experience. Yeah, it's fucked up, man. Yeah, it's fucked up. I want to ask you before we like, I kind of, you know, before I kind of want to get into the reparation things, but before yeah. we leave that, I want to ask you, like, what was the biggest lesson you, you got from it? I would say, um, maybe, I would say for sure one of them was that I am, I am, I don't want to say like worthy, but like I have personal value, you know what I'm saying? Because one of the first things that broke for me was my mental health. You know what I'm saying? Like literally the first day I walked to that shelter, I was well obviously like before that I was subway and shit like that. But like when I walked into the shelter, like one of the first things that broke me was my mental health. So like some of the first stuff that went through my mind was like, do I even deserve to be alive? Because like you can't even put a roof over your head, you can't put food in your mouth. Are you really a man? You know what I'm saying? Like do you deserve to be living? You know what I'm saying? But that's one of the first things that like started to break for me. And I realized through that process afterwards that like, no, like, I, yeah, I, I, of course, like, yes. I, it's, I'm, it's, I'm not the first person to go through some hard shit, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yes, I have value, I have worth, no matter what I'm going through. So that's one of the lessons for me. The other thing I would say is, um, you know, that, that, there are some, that there are good people out here. That there are good people, there are people who, who want, genuinely want you to, to be in a better position if you're not in a position that you want to be. That's what's up. So I want to kind of go into what you've been doing right now. You know, yeah. what is uh, but not like that, but not like to be like, all right, but that's cool. But nah, like, nah, you know, nah, I just kind of, I just, I just kind of want to know, like, you know, what, you know, you went from the situation of being in New York and yeah. going through that hardship, and then finding someone and allowing that person led you to California. Yeah, for sure. And I want to ask you, like, you know, now that you're here, like, what is that? What does that life look like now? That's a beautiful question, man. Um, very different. If you would have told me back and so I went I went to the shelter at first. I, I, I was talking with a boy with me because I still have like the card that they stamp my like stamp me like this is your your number going to the shelter. I still have that in my wallet right now. You know what I'm saying? Like a pink card they stamp this is your number walking in the door. If you would have told me back then that I would be on the West Coast <laughs> sun, fun and stuff, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um <laughs> <laughs> I would have looked at you crazy, like, yeah. nah, you lying. Uh, if you would have told me that I would be a president of an organization, 
I would thought you was crazy. I would say people's lying. If you would have told me I would be vegan, right? plant based. <laughs> <laughs> I was a brother on the grill flipping the burgers. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I was a, I was a, a meat eater. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Uh, if you would have told me, I, you know, so it, it's it's very different. I I wouldn't be you know. I, I would I would be lying if I said I thought this would be the direction and trajectory. Yeah, it's it's not not at all. So, yeah, exactly. So kind of going to some of the things that you do, like what yeah. right now, what are you what are you working on? Yeah, primarily most of my work right now is in the reparations work, right? And that's a lot of what I spend most of my time on, or a lot of my time. So I, I should I should say. So that's a lot of my work, um, working to make sure that those of us whose ancestors built this country receive. The debt back to us that's old, you know, and get yeah. and get and get what's old to us. Um, so that's that's most of my that's a lot of my work. I, I spend a lot of my time too running my small business, saying like black biz. That's actually that's like actually an everyday business. Actually, there's no days off from from that. Um, there are days that are easier and lighter, but there's literally no days off from that. That's all on that business. So what is sack like this? So that's an interesting question. Sack Black Biz actually started, so it, it is a, just answer the question straight up, it is a platform, um, a digital platform, um, it's a service um, that we here in Sacramento provide to Sacramento County Black-owned businesses um, where we market and promote their businesses to black folks um, and to everybody who wants to do business with them. It's a place to find black-owned businesses it's a place to do business with black-owned businesses online and offline. It is a community. Yeah. Uh, it is a place to network with other business owners if you are a business owner yourself. Uh, it is an engine, to be honest with you. It is an economic engine. Uh, there are thousands of dollars that move in and between the hands of black folks through our platform literally nice. every single month. It's people with food on their table and food in their fridge, feeding their kids, doing what they want to do financially, literally because of the platform itself. And it started as a community service. You know, it just started, started in 2016. And when I got out here, a little bit after I got out, here, got out here, I was looking for black-owned businesses. And I was like, man, it's a little bit harder to find black-owned businesses than I, I think it should be. Uh, and at that point, there was something called the Sacramento Black Ages, which was a, it's like a physical book that you would buy. You bought it, I bought it in Oak Park at Underground Books. And you, it was $5, I think it came out like once a year. Okay. And they had a list of all the black owned businesses in Sacramento. And you know, that, at that point, we didn't do we in the digital social media era. So I was like, okay, well, it should be a digital online version, social media version of this. So I, I got the black pages, I think, the second time I bought it. Um, the second time? I think maybe the second, the second time I bought it, I called every single number in there. Called every single business. So I called every one. You know what I'm saying? Um, so what's the name of the book again? It's called the Sacramento Black Pages. I don't know if they still do it as I actually ended up connecting with the publishers of the Sacramento Black Pages mm -hmm. a, few, a few years later. They actually, at some point, I think they were moving out of the state or something, so something going on, and they asked me to take it over. Um, and I don't remember, I don't think I, I, don't, I don't think I said yeah because I was like, well, we don't really need no physical copies no more. You know what I'm saying? So, like, let's. Make you have a physical copy. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, I feel what you're saying. Like, I mean, I remember those yeah. wall books at the front door. I, I used to literally go, 
Like, you know, when you um, waited to look for it, you going straight to Google. Right, and it was like, and so I think I, I think I counted with like, listen, let's incorporate. And I, and I was doing marketing for them too. Like I was yeah. promoting that shit out of this because they had, they basically got on like Facebook and shit at that at oh, that nice. time. So I was promoting this shit heavy. Um, and I think they discontinued the, the, the service and Sackback Fizz started though as a Facebook group in 2016 really. And it was just like, hey, I'ma just, you know, be posting any black owned business I can find. I'm not charging nobody for nothing. I'm just gonna post in here. And if you got a black owned business, you can post your shit in here too. And, you know, it grew, it grew, it grew. And we added a Facebook page on top of that. And we added the Instagram page and we added the website, sacrifice.biz. Um, and we did, we were doing promotion and marketing for black owned businesses. We were helping people find black owned businesses. We also did advocacy work too for black owned businesses. So we were, we were going to city council meetings and, and going to the count, county meetings and saying, yo, we need shit for black owned businesses. We need this for black owned businesses. There's no voice that speaks for black owned businesses. Um, you know, or, or there's not enough voices. So there's definitely voices. I want to the Sacramento Black Chamber of Commerce, California Black Chamber of Commerce, who have done great work for black owned businesses in the area. And I feel like the more the better. Yeah. Um, but that's, so that's what Sacramento Black Business is. It, and it, as I said, it grew um, to now we are the, literally the largest and most active place to find and connect with black owned businesses in the county. And we've seen real world impacts. We've seen people, you know, start businesses, you know, um, grow businesses. And, you know, we've saved businesses from going out of business. Not everyone, and there's, you know, part of, a, a, a lot, lot of our time in the I would say the 2017, 2018 years. Like, I, I remember spending a lot of time trying to stop businesses from going out of business. Okay. You know, That's what's up. You know, and personally, myself, like, became partners in businesses to keep businesses from dying. Mm-hmm. At least, at least two. What um, is now Crowder's Variety Store, which is um, a 2250 Farm Road. Okay. Um, That's a business that I, you know, uh, was a partner in to help keep it from. Um, from going out of business, um, a business called the Diva Market, which was it was a a business that would bring Black women vendors into spaces where they wanted Black women vendors. Um, and yeah, so I, I became a partner in that business when it became clear that the business would not be a business if there wasn't somebody to take it over. Um, so that's so that's part of the work that we've done. I, I do less of that now. But that's what's like my business. Okay. What was it? What was it like? What is it like knowing you were like a keystone in some of those, in something like that? To be honest, um, I only I'm gonna think about it now because you asked the question. Like, really, it feels like, like you know, I feel blessed and humbly to be a part of any of the things that I do because it's, you know because of kind of how I'm coming into this like, and what I was doing and, and where I was at. You know. 10, 15 years ago. So I feel very lucky and blessed, man. Um, you know, really for me, if people are living better lives, if things are better in people's lives, then that's really what I'm concerned about. Um, but I want to answer the question because it is something to think about, right? Like, I, you know. Like you said, some people wouldn't have a business enough. I, you know. Not, not literally yeah. because of you, but you yeah. definitely helped. Oh yeah, that's in, for sure. In, 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 
Yeah, yeah. definitely. That's, yeah. that's that's absolutely, absolutely true. It, it feels good. Like I'll just keep it keep it stacked with you. It feels good. Mm-hmm. It feels very good, and it feels it feels empowering. And it, 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 to me, it, it means I can do more, and it makes me want to do more. Um, it was a, part of the reason was 30 and 20. 
be like, what's 30 and 20? And it, it was, when I looked, it was that Sacramento County had, uh, for, for black folks specifically, had, I think it was a, a 30% poverty rate and a 20% unemployment rate, or 20% poverty rate and a 30% unemployment rate. Um, and obviously those are, those are key either contributing factors or features of what ultimately is homelessness and unhousedness. Um, right? So part of what I envision and hope that the work that I've done here and will continue to do here does is decrease the likelihood that people are unhoused uh, in some way. I think this is more indirect, indirectly. Um, you know, one of the places I used to, I used to live up on 16th Street and Basler, so it's like the border between the North Side and Midtown. And if you go like on the like the river trail up there, crazy, yo, it's crazy, bro. Like, and I used to go up there, I used to go around it almost every day, like, and that's why I saw the kids up there too. Mm -hmm. Like 60, 70 tents, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like just cars and everything. Just right, cars, you know, um, and and uh, I was fortunate to at some point connect and volunteer with, I think it was called, I don't, I don't, I don't know if it was called the Sacramento Homeless Union. Um, I forget the exact name, but, but folks who were like out in the camps serving folks every single day, every single chance that they could, um, you know, you know bringing students from the medical schools out there to give medical services on site, um, you know, doing food, you know, I actually just get bottled water and take it up there. Um, and I actually go out there and you know, just, just talk to people and just, you know, the people, one thing that happens, right, right, one thing that happens is you become invisible to people almost. Like once you get unhoused and you start, because you know you didn't, you didn't take a shower in three, four days. You wear the same shit you're wearing. You may have one outfit. You know what I'm saying? Your hair ain't getting cut. So you, now you're starting to wolf out and, you know, and, and you're stinking now. And so people like, act like they don't see you, you know? Um, and so to return that humanity, even yeah, like, like I do it now, like unhoused folks, I, I see, I say, what's up, man? What's up? I'm saying, like, I, I say something to, to the person. I knew how I was when, like, people was to treat me like I was invisible, too. Yeah. What's up? Uh, thank you. Yeah, thanks for that perspective, too. Sure. And, yeah, I try to acknowledge folks, too. Try not to walk through their homes. Try to walk around if right. I can, just out of respect for the fact that it's still their home. Right. Like, I know it's a sidewalk, but at the same time, like, you know, it's also the entryway to somebody's house, right. and I'm respectful enough to, I don't know, walk around. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, for me, it's definitely 50-15. I grew up in Fresno, so Fresno yeah. has a crazy homeless population. Like, we actually had a, we had a, we, there was a place where the homeless people took over, and they called it Tent City. It was literally mm. a bunch of tents. Like, it was literally, this, like, almost like a, like a USA of the size of a small apartment, just all tents. So it was like community, they had to go break it up and stuff like that. Um, these be these be like if you people go out there and like these become their own communities. Yeah. Like there's when we go out talk talk to some of those folks out there where it's uh, I mean, there doesn't have to be a large number of unhoused folks, but even with even with the smaller numbers, like they people are looking out for each each other, they're looking out for each other's stuff. Um, you know, that there's and people are providing each other resources. If I know where the food is at, I'm gonna tell you. Uh, I may bring you know them we, we're sharing a lot. Um, so like these become our own communities and 
think Sacramento had a pilot program. Actually, this is to your question because I remember this one like South South Park area where like it was like a this space is for the tents. Mm -hmm. This is the space, and then we're gonna bring in supportive services into the space, and we're gonna you know protect it. And I remember like I used to this was like not that long ago. It was like the last two or three years. I used to be down there. Um, so I said, so I'm a, I'm a New Yorker, so I like to work out outside in the park. I like to do pull-up balls and dip balls and all that. Yeah. And Southside Park, like, was like the only place that I could find in my area that had like the pull-up balls. Mm -hmm. I don't have to be like on the monkey bars, like the kids' monkey bars, yeah. which I would do anyway. So I would still do that, but I want some like pull-up balls and dip balls. And like, it was literally right across the street from this space. Uh, I don't know if it's still going on, but. I thought that was a, 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 a creative way to, to attack the problem, and I, and I thought that had a chance of working. I don't know what has happened with it. I hope it's still there. I hope it's doing well. Was that community kind of like under the bridge? It was, yep. Yeah. Yep, that over, under, yep, like under the overpass, yep. Oh, um, it's not there anymore. Oh, uh, shit, you see it. They replaced, they replaced it with the farmer's market, and now okay. the farmer's market's relocated to the Really? Like, I don't think that under the bridge market is there. Actually, I don't know that for a fact. Okay. But I, th I think that it was re relocated over on 21st. But I, I would have to double check. That yeah, that's way. a good. Yeah, I, I remember they. You're right. They, they used to be a. They they was doing the farmers market there before the before the tents went up. Okay. So then they. Uh, okay. And then the tents came up, and then I I wouldn't see the farmers market no more. Um, okay. And, so neither are there. It's a lot of construction. Well, but. Um, did you have any other questions, Lucy? I got, a, I got another one. I was, I was just more of a, I was more of a just touch on like, I know you said mental health. Yeah. But I kind of wanted to like, what do you, what is something you feel like people glaze over when we, when we, when we talk about, um, you know, homelessness? I, I, you know, I, I think back on that video that guy from New York when, um, I don't know if you remember, it was like an older guy, older black guy, he was on the news and he was getting interviewed. Basically, he was, he was upset because, you know, some dude caught him a bum. He said, listen, man, I ain't no bum. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, on, I'm on hard times right now, but I'm a human being. Yeah. Like, in the day, like, Yo, I, I, was in, I was in the shelter with people with master degrees. Yeah. I was in the shelter with teachers. Keep it real with you. Yeah. Like, um, you know, so we are human beings, and that's why I think, you know, we become dehumanized, you know, and you know, so I think that's that's looked over. Yeah. You know, our our humanity. I think one thing that's looked over too is the how many of our people was out there. I think the last numbers I saw was forty percent of the unhoused people who self-identify as black African American, and fifty percent of the unhoused families are people who self-identify as black African American. So like we're you know we're maybe what fifteen percent of the total U.S. population. Let's say something like that, fifteen sixteen percent. We're like four, three, four times. You know, so it's, it's, I think that's overlooked. It's, it's how many of us are out there. Yeah. Um, and you know, we'll talk more about the, in the reparations work. I make the case that 99, 95% of those folks are black African Americans whose ancestors were enslaved in this country. Um, so somebody said this to me. I think it was, man, I had it like in the last couple of days. Somebody said, you know, the way they, the way we look outside right now, it looked like the end of slavery when they just let us out and we had nowhere to go. Like that's what that was the comparison that he made to me and that shit hit me in the face. I was like, damn, like 
know, I don't know what it looked like back then, but like, do you know that period of time is called the new year? I've heard that, but I didn't know if that was what it was. Really, what does nadir mean? That's, that's, a, that's um, a big that's beginning. That's a good question. Um, I don't know how the word exactly translates, but I know that it has to do with you know that transitional period before there were true laws mm. and policies and regulations put in place to for the transition. Shit. And actually, at that, that time, sense. I think was when there were reparations proposed. Oh yeah most popularly proposed. I, I, I meant to bring my uh, notes on what those reparations were. <laughs> for the ignorant mule. Right. Yeah. They're, they're being there, for mm -hmm. sure. There was also a reparation where, um, I don't remember, I don't remember for Booker T. Washington, I think it was him. There was another um, call for us to be able to go back to Africa and the U.S. pay for it. Oh yeah, yeah, you know? oh yeah, yes. I think um, now we can get citizenship in Ghana at least. Can we? Go I don't know right. if that was something we could do or if that was also another reparation for back then. Really? Um, I know there was an effort. Um, I'm, I'm glad you raised that too. I know there was an effort to get us up out of here mm -hmm, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. before sure. the end of slavery. I know there was effort for sure. Um, I didn't know that that was going on toward the end of slavery though. Um, yeah. Wow. So maybe that was during the end of slavery. I, I don't know. The timeline could be. Uh, convoluted in my memory right now because I don't have, like I said, on my notes with me. But yeah, I just think that's interesting you mentioned that. It feels like that period of transition. It has a whole name. Man, that that shit. When when the, when the brother told me that, like, I didn't connect. Like, I didn't because yeah, you know, I don't know what it was like back then, but it must have been hell for our, for our ancestors, you know, to be. It's okay. You're free, but we ain't gonna give you shit. So you don't have no way to live, you know. Um, if, I think Frederick Douglass or somebody would say it's freedom to famine, freedom to want, freedom to. And those are the those are the words they would use. I think it was Frederick Douglass. Um, and then you had the, you know, could we know what was coming next, which was the hell that was you know, coming toward us, you know, the attempts to re-enslave us, you know, the sharecropping system and the, burning down our bodies. Right, come on, right, come on. The, the red summers and the KKK and black holes. What's, what's interesting about that too when you bring that up because it makes me think about that obviously you're talking about that book very clearly yeah. um, but there was all I remember there's also there's like a I can't remember where it goes specifically but there's an archive of interviews of people who are just free from from slavery. I saw something on YouTube like that. Actually I wanna I wanna I wanna lift up somebody's name here. Um, no it's it's a it's like a it's like a, a public archive like it's like actual interviews. And they're like you said it's kinda uh, like what you said like Coming out of that, a lot of people wanted to go right back, but obviously people try to use that, like misconstrue that in the wrong way. But yeah. it's because that's all they knew. Like you said, you came out of this, you know, being taken care of and all these different these different things, to now being like, okay, well, do your own thing yeah. with no support. And by the way, you can't work a job. And by the way, all these by the ways, right? And you're like, well, shoot, right? <laughs> what can I do? Right, but. Yeah. One person I want to lift up is Callie House. Um, Callie House, uh, one of the ancestors. She was born in slave herself. There's a book about her called, it's by Mary Frances Berry, it's called My Face is Black is True. And it's, uh, the words, right? But it's, that's the, and that's, that's a quote from Callie House. Um, My Face is Black is True. Um, and it's an amazing book. 
and Callie House was born a slave herself. She would eventually start what was, I think still is, the largest movement for reparations in the country. Uh, she started an organization called the Ex-Slave Pension and Mutual Benefit Association. Um, they actually introduced or worked to help introduce reparations legislation back in the, this was in like the 1890s. Um, she was, you know, she, her movement, I, mean, I still, I think it's still the largest national. She had, I think there were over 300,000 formerly enslaved members of the organization. How many? 300,000. Okay, now think about that in the 1890s. How, how much work you got to put in yeah. to get 300,000 people to sign your membership? That's and, a lot of people. You know, um, Kelly House. Yeah, she was going from place to place, signing people up. Um, eventually, the federal government didn't like what she was doing. Um, she was falsely imprisoned um, for postal fraud. Yeah. Um, she was jailed, I think, for about a year. What kind of postal fraud? Yeah, it was like they 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 hit it with some bullshit. Like, well, um, y'all sending out these these membership cards and y'all promising people reparations. So y'all lying to the people, saying they're gonna get reparations if they sign their name. So. Oh, wow. Um, and now that was not true. Yeah, 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 which is wild. But she was, she she went she went to she went to jail, um, and yeah, it's it's, it's, it's deep. I wanna I wanna lift her name up because you know she was somebody you know and this 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 is in that time, but this is in that nadir period, right? Which is the this is the the so-called Reconstruction era. I think her time is sort of the you know the Reconstruction era really. So like 1865 to maybe like 1875, 18, yeah, this period. That was very short-lived, right? Um, you know, it was sabotaged. Um, you know, we had the creation of the Freedmen's um, Bank, the Freedmen's Bureau, at that point, which is specifically supposed to post to serve freedmen, right? Which was the political status or description of our people at that point. We were called Ameri American freedmen. Yeah. Um, and a lot of us, you know. Still use that now too, um, specifically for those who were enslaved and emancipated in the United States. Um, but keep in mind, at that point, you know there was a forty acres of mule promise. At that point, it was taken back. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some of our people actually started to get some land. Yeah. Um, and then uh, General Sherman, who, who was the general who was in charge of that um, that that program, had to go to the people who started to get land and say. Actually, you have to get off this land because the new president who came after Lincoln, Andrew Johnson, says he don't really want to do this for years of evil shit. Um, and that was a deal that we that 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 they that, that they cut with the with the southern states, etc., to keep the keep up you know, to to make sure that we don't have another civil war. Basically, it's crazy to see that some of the some of the things in history are like repeated because I think about obviously it's definitely different things, but it's like that same connotation where, you know, Obama pushed hard for Obamacare, and people were against it, didn't understand it, just thought the idea, why free healthcare, oh, it's gonna tax us all, it's not gonna work, it's not whatever, we get it in, we get, he gets it out, gets it done, people get adjusted to it, and then Trump comes in like, yeah, by the way, no. Trying to take it away, yeah, I mean, that's... And now he tried to put his own one in, in place, but nonetheless, the fact that you had something in place was like, I know the last guy said this, but yeah, no. that's, that's, that's fucked up. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, up, it's kind of crazy to see like that same through line like, back there. It's like, four acres of mule, we'll make sure y'all get taken care of. It's not coming like, yeah, I don't yeah, no. that, but yeah. 
Ashley. I think <laughs> General, General Sherman, I think in some of his writings, you know, to his credit, you know, to, at least from, from, from what I remember, it wasn't it wasn't an easy thing to, to, to do. And keep in mind this too. The government then paid reparations to slave owners. Yep. To compensate them for the loss of the their property. The workers. Or their property. Right. So keep that in mind too, um, you know. And I mean, this was you know this was a tough time for, and this the, this is the point that we made a lot in the rep reparation space because we draw a straight line from then to right. now. It's, a, it's just crazy that, to me, like white people got reparations. That's out crazy. Like, it's a little red. Come on. They literally got immediate reparations, and we are generations out of slavery still asking for that. Yeah. That's why. Well, I, I just. Sorry. Nah, it, it is. That, yo, like, I have the same reaction no matter how many times I hear it. Because exactly. It's, and it makes me mad as hell. It's like, you really, and to be honest with you, there were attempts to, so President Lincoln actually before the end of the Civil War, there were a lot of negotiations going on with the South to avoid war. One of the negotiation points were, listen, we will pay you the value of each of these people. Um, free them and let's avoid war. And Southerners said, uh, no, they're worth more to us the way they are. If we try to come take them, we're just not gonna be a part of this country no more than do our own country. Um, and at a certain point, you know, um, there were, the government actually had a chance to end slavery at the Revolutionary War, part point two, right, the 1776 time, too. We had so many opportunities to stop this, and we didn't. And now we hear now. So I want to, I kind of want to use that to segue into the conversation of reparations. Yeah. So I want to, like I said, obviously Ali's going to lead this part, but I kind of want to start off like what, what is going on as far as reparations? I actually have one more thing. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I liked how you had lifted up, um, what is her, Cali House? Cali House. Cali yes. House. Well, and yes. I just wanted to, on the note of like, Forty acres and a mule. Shout out. Well, another person. My uncle sent me this article on Bridget Biddy Mason, who's the, yes, yes the first black woman to own uh, land in California. Mm -hmm. And her story is really cool, just because um, she was born enslaved, and she sued for her freedom and got it. And in in that, she became a midwife, saved up her money like very humbly, saved up like about $300,000 after he invested in a piece of land. And, you know, she she's also, I guess, a testament of that time. I think that was around 1851, you know, right before the real Reconstruction era, I guess you could call started. But, yeah, there is still movers and shakers. There's still silver lining in our story and in our era. Um, and, yeah, I have a question on that, but I wanna, I'm going to pass it back to you. Yeah, I just wanted to shout out one more person. Well, let, me, let me say one more thing. Let me, let me say something about Biddy Mason because uh, I'm glad you raised that. She's one of the ancestors, one of the, you know, I mean, just think about our people. We are some, we are, we are a miracle as a people. I mean, think about what we overcame. Like the, the Biddy Masons of the world, by the way, Biddy, I, I had the privilege and honor of uh, visiting her gravesite uh, in LA last year. Um, uh, and she, you know, she's one of the people considered one of the founders of the city of Los Angeles, like one of the creators of the city of Los Angeles. I think she was out of the San Bernardino area at first. Um, and I mean, she's just 
uh, a great example. I'm really glad you raised that because she's a great example of who we are as a people. Think about what we overcame as a people and to do amazing, great shit. Like, there's nothing us right now can't do. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Um, and Biddy, Mason, the elder, and the ancestors are a testament to that. Callie House, of course. Isaiah Dickerson, who used to, who was, you know, Callie House's road dog. Um, you know, uh, the, I want to give a shout out to, there was, there was a, a group of Baptist ministers who actually negotiated the 40 acres of the mule thing, um, you know, toward the end of the, uh, the Civil War. So, like, we have some powerful, and there's, there's too many to name, you know, so we have some powerful, powerful part of our lineage, and they're in us, like, they're part of us. They're the same blood that went through them runs with us now, and that means we're going to get reparations. Yeah, yeah. What's up? Shout out to Mason. I think she had about 40 years. I think she lived until she passed away. And I think um, said about, hmm, I don't mean to bring up that date, but it's important to me because I think it was 1891 is when she passed. Yeah, January 15, 1891. And she got her.
talking about specifically mean taking action to provide a range of benefits to the survivors and descendants of some sort of human rights violation. So there was some sort of very bad thing that happened and then there's an action taken to provide a range of benefits to the survivors and descendants of that very bad thing. In our case, as a people, the very bad thing is, or starts with enslavement. It continues to what we might call the Jim Crow era. So let's say from the middle, let's say from end of the Civil War to let's say 1970, and then the period of now, whatever you want to call this right now. Uh, so that's, that's, those are sort of the, the eras um, that we are thinking about and talking about as when the bad things have been happening to us. So basically since we got here. Anywhere you go in the world, you go to parts of Africa, you go to Germany, you talk to the, to the folks there, or Israel. If you go to places in South America where reparations have happened, if you go to the United Nations and talk about what the international rules are for reparations. By the way, reparations is very common. It's, it happens in all the parts of the country, in all the parts of the world. It's happened here in the United States probably about 20 different times, or a bunch of different groups. Not us, of course. Uh, anywhere you go in the world, reparations has generally five pieces to it. There's generally five pieces to it. Uh, compensation, that's the first piece. That's the money, that's the checks, that's the financial, that's the monetary. We have a saying if we don't have reparations, if we don't have compensation, it ain't reparations. So our, our people work for 256 years for nothing. We gotta get paid, okay? There's a lot of back pay due. Um, so that's the, that's the first piece. The second piece is what we call restitution. That's the return of land, the return of property, the restoring of you to where you would have been, could have been, should have been, had the bad thing never happened to us in the first place. Third piece is rehabilitation. This is what you might think of as a non-financial form of reparation. So free legal services, free educational services, free medical services from cradle to the grave, things like that. The fourth form is what we call guarantees of non-repetition. These are what you might think of as the protections and law. So changes to our government, changes to our laws, Changes to our systems to make sure that what happens to us never happens again. And the fifth piece or fifth form is what we call a satisfaction. These are what you might think of as a, the symbolic forms of reparation. So a form of public apology from the government, changing our textbooks to make sure that what actually happens has to be told, taking down uh, anti-black, racist uh, public displays, and putting up what we want in their in their place. So compensation plus restitution plus rehabilitation guarantees of non-repetition plus satisfaction equals reparations. I'm saying that in that way because by law the State Reparations Task Force is required to create a reparations plan and recommendations with each of those pieces in by, by law, the law that created the State Reparations Task Force, uh, which is Assembly Bill 3121, AB3121, which was signed into law by Governor Gavin Newsom in 2020, authored by then Assembly Member Dr. Shirley Weber, now of course California's first Black Secretary of State, Dr. Shirley Weber, um, our team at CJDC, Code of Support Justice, Equitable California, we had the very amazing honor and privilege and blessing to help write the final version of the law that created the State Reparations Task Force. Uh, we wrote two, we had, um, there were two amendments written into the law that we wrote ourselves that the Secretary accepted and that the legislature accepted ultimately too. Uh, one of those pieces, one of those amendments, one of those improvements was language that made it more clear who this was really for. Um, it literally says in the language, um, this is a task force of study to develop reparations proposals with special consideration for African Americans who are descendants of persons in the United States. So that special consideration for African Americans who are descendants, that language was 
uh, flames that we help break. Um, people always ask us, well, if it's a special consideration, what's the other consideration, if there is any? Uh, there's one other consideration. Uh, those are the descendants of what we call the free blacks. So the descendants of the free blacks who were living in the United States before 1900. Uh, some, of, some of us have maybe seen the movie 12 Years a Slave, where you had, which is a real story, right? Where, and a very common story where you had a free black man who was in the North, who was kidnapped and sold into slavery itself. So because of the special kind of danger that those folks were in, that's the other consideration. So that's the language, that, that's part of the language that we help, help get ready to the bill. The other language is toward the end of the bill, it says something like, I'm paraphrasing, just because California is doing this doesn't mean that the federal government isn't ultimately responsible for doing a national reparations plan too. Um, and at that point in 2020, we again helped improve the legislation, then we helped get the legislation into law. We were at every single committee hearing, calling legislators up, going to see legislators, asking people to show up for public comment, doing everything we could. Ultimately, the legislature, the state senate, state assembly voted in favor of the reparations task force bill. We had Democrats and Republicans vote for that bill. I think over 85% of the state legislature in general voted for it, both Democrats and Republicans. Um, we then worked to encourage and motivate the governor to sign the bill. The governor waited to the last day <laughs> to sign the bill. The last, maybe like after that day, like the bill ain't happening type, you know what I'm saying? Um, and and we how were, long did it take him to sign the, the Stop Asian Hate Bill? I, you know, I can't tell you, but I feel like it wasn't, it wasn't, I, it, it wasn't the last day. That's my, that's my understanding. Sorry, sorry. Um, no worries, no worries. Um, <laughs> We actually, we was, we was, at certain point we started getting nervous because it was like, you know, there's a, there's a deadline that be after, I think it's like in October, by the way, but after which, if your bill ain't signed into law, like, you got to start over, um, all over. And so we got some dope, we got a, we got a dope team, and we got some folks in the Los Angeles area who are connected to like, you know, people with like names, you know what I'm saying? And so they, you know, they called, they reached out to Maxine Waters, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, asked her to, Called Governor Gavin Newsom and Tyler had signed and Maxine Waters pulled up on the governor and said, Yo, you need to sign this. Um, some, of, some of our folks reached out to Ice Cube. Ice Cube called the governor. Uh, that's why you see in the video of the signing ceremony, you see Ice Cube and the governor and us too at the signing ceremony with the governor in 2020. Um, that law created what is California and the country's first ever statewide task force. We call it a task force. I really call it a group of people whose job it is to. First, study reparations with a focus on California, educate the public about what they learn, and then develop a set of rep reparation recommendations. Uh, that group of people had two years to do those three things. Two years to do those three things. Uh, it's a nine-member group of people. There's nine people on it, on this, on this, on this group. Um, and right now, they're coming up to their two-year deadline actually the two-year deadline actually ends end of this month actually yeah, yep yep and they're going to release their final reparations recommendations publicly on the 29th of june here in sacramento at their 16th public hearing uh, by the way everybody's invited if you're in sacramento area i'm talking to y'all right now you sacramento area i don't know which camera i'm looking at <laughs> all three all right right on be there june 29th 9 a.m at the secretary of state office building so on 11th Street, I think it's 1500 11th Street, first floor auditorium, it's free, it's open to the public. Be there, uh, you're gonna to get to see the final reparations recommendations. We already know what they look like because the draft is up now. Um, 
But this is a time for people to get connected to what's going on, get educated about what's going on, and to get prepared for what's coming next. Because what's coming next is, I said this to the team before that, we are, we already made history. Right? We already have to do some shit that never been done before, but what we gotta do next is gonna make what we already did look easy. Because next we actually gotta get you reparations. It's one thing to do a law to create a task force to study and to develop and raise these recommendations. Those recommendations are just recommendations. That those set of, that set of recommendations are going to the state senate next. Actually, at, at the end of this month, they're going to be sent to the state senate, sent to the state assembly, sent to the governor for them to then create reparations bills and laws out of starting next year. Make no mistake, I'm very I, I don't want to say 100 percent confident because I don't, I don't like that, but I'm 99.9 plus percent confident that there will be reparations bills introduced into the California legislature in 2024. We already have public commitments from two sitting state legislators who have said, I'm going to introduce reparation legislation based on what the task force did in 2024. That's going to happen. Um, so folks really, I think, are at a good time now to get connected and to get involved in what's coming next. I will say um, that was a lot of information. <laughs> that was a lot of information. And I'm hitting more there with it. You know what yeah. <laughs> I kind of want to ask you, like, very quickly, sure. for somebody who, like, might have a, I always play it like this, because I, I always think, like, a seven-year-old, if somebody was seven, mm -hmm. and they wanted to know, like, what you're doing right now, yeah. like, what's a simplified version of, like, to understand, because yeah. I, I understand everything you just said, but I feel like some people might have been like, yeah, well, some people have, for sure, um, if, if, if I was being to a child, which, by the way, we have to do, Part of yeah, we, we did a community town hall for reparations in Elk Grove with the Black Youth Leadership Project back in March. By the way, Black Youth Leadership Project is a great organization. Did a lot of great work advocating for the kids in our schools here in California and outside California too. And there were some kids in there, you know, and 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 they have a podcast too, by the way. And, and they have some, it's a young 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 folks. So the way I was bring to to a seven year old, I would say that. A long time ago, some really bad things happened to people in our family. And what I'm doing right now is trying to make that right and trying to make the people that did those bad things pay for what they did. That's how I would tell a kid. That should be understandable. Yeah. Um, you know, and we don't got to go into any more details about it, but that is in the essence of what I'm doing.
thinking about all seven countries, there's probably more, but at least the seven countries, primary countries that participated in transatlantic slave trade. <laughs> I want to name them very clearly. Please do. Because they need to do Britain, Portugal, France, Spain, the Netherlands, USA, and Denmark. Mm. Right? So we have all seven of these countries. I'm going to use France as an example. Because France, you know, had a very interesting relationship with Haiti. Right? Mm. They colonized Haiti and then, you know, basically told Haiti, yeah, you can have your land back if you pay 21 billion dollars, I think it was 21 billion dollars. And pay us reparations. Pay us reparations, 21 billion dollars. You, Haiti, pay us, France, 21 billion dollars, or we will give you your land back. And so Haiti does this, but what it does is destabilizes their economy, and it's been obviously incredibly hard for them to recover, yep. right? So have reparations or are reparations also being pursued for black people in other countries simultaneous to the, to us in the U.S. I know it's just California right now that's really doing hard action work, I yeah. guess you could say. But in in a global sense, like, are there other countries, black people in other countries that are also doing this work? Absolutely. It's a great, it's a great question. I want to answer the question straight up. I also want to say you, you named seven European countries right? that were part of they were They were African countries who were part of the slave trade. Right, right. That's, that's a, uh, we have to, we have, at some point, you know, we'll, we'll need to, to get to that. Mm -hmm. But to your question, uh, yes, there, are, there is something called CARICOM. Have you heard of CARICOM? CARICOM is a group of Caribbean countries who have joined together to fight and pursue reparations for the perpetrators of slavery in the Caribbean. So that's a, it's an organized group of Caribbean countries. Actually, I was on a Twitter space, this was like last year, last year with like the Vice President of CARICOM, the Chair of the California Replacements Task Force, uh, Camilla Moore, and a bunch of other people, and there was like thousands of people in that Twitter space. And we were talking about the differences and the similarities between what's going on in California, going on across the country here in the United States, and also what's going on in the Caribbean for reparations from the countries that did them wrong. Um, so the answer is yes, there, there is a movement, an organized movement of Caribbean countries. I, I think, if I remember correctly, I don't think all of the Caribbean nations are in CARICOM. That's one of the questions I think we, we, we asked the Vice President. Also, I think one thing that I was surprised to hear from the Vice President of CARICOM was that black people in the Caribbean who don't live in the Caribbean anymore are not included in the claim. So like, let's say you immigrated to New York City from Jamaica, you're a US citizen now. You're not a part of the CARICOM claim anymore. I thought that was fascinating. I, I didn't quite 100% understand it personally, but you know, they have the right to self-determine what they want the reparations to be, who they want it to be for. Same right that we claim for ourselves too. Um, but, but, but the answer is yes, there are. Um, there are also, I think, individual countries that are taking action too. Um, you know, I think um, <laughs> this is interesting because if you think last year, didn't you have like, it was, it was earlier this year, last year, the Queen of England died, right? And, you know, then Jamaica, and some of these, some of these Western and Caribbean countries are, you know, still have a connection to the British monarchy and all that, you know? <laughs> 
right on. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. You know, and so there was a real, a real, much more louder conversation about reparations from Britain for the, for our Jamaican brothers and sisters around that point. So I remember hearing a lot more about that. So, but the short answer is yes, there are. And from our perspective here, you know, one position, one position, one position that we've always taken is that we are supportive of people's getting what's owed to them, no matter where they are. We are, and we also think that our success increases the chance of their success. We think actually, when we win here, we're gonna strike at the belly of the beast, and we in the heart of the dragon. So, like, we, if we win here, when we win here, that's gonna send shockwaves around the world. They go, oh, they got it from like the monster. So, like, yo, like, we can do it, you know. Um, so. There, there are, and I expect that when we're successful here, they will be successful here too. Not to mention that, because I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in like, like economies of the world. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you know this. Or most people don't, probably don't know this. Is that California, the state of California, has the fifth biggest economy in the world? Oh yeah, oh yeah. So oh yeah. If a place like California can do reparations, mm -hmm. a state set up a union, we do reparations, then there really won't be an excuse for absolutely right. <laughs> absolutely right. these other places. Is the ask for, like, I remember at the start of this, the ask was around like $14 trillion mm -hmm. post-COVID um, in terms of like what black people economically are owed, yeah. right? Is that figure still the same? Or is it's, it growing? It's, it's, I think it's up to $16 trillion now, that's a floor. Um, because, and that's based on, I want to give a shout out to Dr. William Darity Jr. Uh, out of MIT and Duke University, and probably the leading economist on reparations in the country. He's one of the four economists that work for the state of California Reparations Task Force. He wrote a great book called From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. Um, I've, I've had the pleasure of meeting with him directly. Um, and he's, um, you know, somebody who who is is very much somebody who we look to for guidance and for direction on reparations. Also, I, just a quick aside here, I want I want to give a shout out to and a, and, a, and give a give condolences to the family, uh, Professor William Spriggs, who was one of the other economists who worked for the State Reparations Task Force. He passed away last week, um, un, unexpectedly. From from my perspective, I had no idea that I was coming. Um, I think we rarely do, but um, he was the chief economist for the AFL-CIO, professor of economics at Howard University, uh, my alma mater. Um, so I, I want to give us just a, a condolences to his family. But uh, to the question, uh, it's the, the the numbers up because the gap is going up, and by the gap I mean the wealth gap. Yeah. That fourteen trillion dollars, sixteen trillion dollars, is what the the dollar figure gap is between wealth um, between white folks and black Americans. Um, and so the idea is that wealth is the is two things. It's first the best way to understand the impact economically of, on the, of the past on the present. So if you want to understand the impact economically of the past on the present, wealth is probably the best economic indicator for that. Because wealth is how people accumulate wealth is very much tied to how the people before them accumulated wealth. Okay, so one of the ways that people 
I'm not sure people understand this um, as much sort of explicitly, but a lot of wealth that we have comes from our parents in some way, the people before us. Very true for white folks. Okay? Not so true for us. Actually, we have a particularly interesting reverse of that because in our community, the, our wealth goes backwards. Where the younger folks are, younger folks are actually taking care of the older folks in I our just, community. I just spoke about that to my to my girlfriend about mm. that exact concept. Because yeah. I told her I said, I said if you look at if you study, because I'm I'm really into like studying culture too. When you study all the cultures, black people have a unique culture. Because they're one of the few cultures that invest backwards. Most yeah. most people, you know, when we think of immigrants and things like that, when they come to this country, all their money goes forward. Yeah to the kid or wherever, like, I don't care if I gotta, you know, wear the same t-shirt, like, yep. it goes forward. We're the only generation where, as soon as you turn 18, or as soon as you are able to take care of yourself, you now have to take a step backwards to take care of mom slash grandma. Oh, yeah. or help pay a bill. Right, yeah. right. And well, I'm saying, like, example, like, right now, I, I, I definitely, like, I, my grandma drives my extra car, and I, I fund that, and my mom also helps fund her lifestyle, where usually, like I said, we talk about wealth, but the opposite. Grandma's probably be set up to where it's like you can prosper yeah. and not have as much burden. Well, yeah. And, yeah. and I was, I was saying from my own experience being a teenager, like 16, working my first job and helping contribute to bills. Right. Because I felt compelled to. I didn't ask me for that, but I felt responsible to do that. And I don't know that other. I, I I've yet to meet other ethnic groups. Even I like my students. I have a student, two students who just the two black students, the only two black students I have in my summer class. They just did their first speech and we're talking exactly about this. One of them says, yeah, I'm kind of like an ATM for my family because he's, you know, he's got a lot going for him right now. Um, and it's working hard, you know, but, so yeah, I, I feel like it happens sometimes. Anyway, I just, I, I feel like, yeah, it takes shape in so many ways. No, that's what he's that's what he's talking about like where the that's a that's an indicator of this where we're coming from because like you said especially when you think about at least when i'm not this is me getting philosophical like when i take a step back and think about like you know grandma grandpa had a mindset that didn't allow them to push forward so i won't make sure i want i know what grandma grandpa been through i want to make sure that like they're good which is understandable but like you said it's, it's almost a hindrance at sometimes well it's it's interesting because so we make we make the case that that is a direct result of slavery. That's what I say. Right. And, right. Can I just ask yeah, sure. you because I want to be clear, like, and that's also one narrative for me. Like, my grandparents were part of the migration, the Great Migration, mm. and I don't. We really, I could rely on them financially for a long time. I have, and still do to an extent. But I feel this responsibility to pay it back and continue to help my mom if she needs it. Uh, so it's like it's also that like what happens when you advance beyond your family's needs and paying it backwards when they don't really necessarily need it but it's like sometimes they might need it well, I, see, I, I, see, I feel like for me what I think about is I can only speak from my own personal experience um, I'm not really talking about specifically grandma and grandpa because that's very understandable mm -hmm. but I think about sometimes it's like uh, it's one thing to help, but we're I feel like we're at a point where it's like it's almost expected. Well, yeah, and 
and that's why like i'm not saying like you're wrong like if you were super duper good and you did that that makes sense but it's like we're not that much you know we're not that high up in the economic chain to be doing something like that well my point is that i think some of us are i think that i think that that's our narrative about wealth as black people is not a monolith and so for example like my dad worked very hard to become pretty financially well well off my mom's financial journey looks completely different and so while on one end i've experienced and seen what it looks like to work towards health and and be able to build it and sit on it even my grandparents are retired my mom's still working towards retirement my mom is still you know what i mean like i'm not putting all her business out there but i'm just saying like i don't think that for black people are all of our wealth or all of us have even experienced having or feeling compelled to you know give back in that way i do think that I there's would, a handful i would be bold enough to say that most people do and i only say that because i speaking not specifically to black people but also speaking to people who are white i have a, a, a co-worker shout out to and like she literally has her daughter living with her her daughter's married and has a great job is over the age of like past the age of like being on insurance and all that stuff mm-hmm. and she's allowed to stay there patty has the ability to take care of the bills and allow her daughter to stay there and take care of her parents and i know i can almost say for sure that most people that i know that are black don't have the opportunity it's it's a collective i think that's what's beautiful about black people we have that collective like you know me my cousins can come together and take care of the, take care of grandma but there's no situation where it's like mom can take care of me and grandma to make sure I'm going forward. That's fine, but my, where I'm coming from, I do have a lot of black people I know that come from well-off parents and whose parents have helped them buy their first house. And these are black people, you know, but so. Are, are these the majority or are these outliers? That's, that's the point I'm making. I, my point is that I think that our narrative is vast enough to include both. I don't know what the percentage yeah, would be. I saying. don't know if we are the minority, but I would say that it'd be unfair to say that it is the minority without having proper statistics. Let me add something to this because I think it's, I think some of the data bears out the case that it's more often than not the the younger generations are supporting the older generations. I think that's what the that's what the data bears out. My memory is correct. I'm uh, thinking about data produced actually by Dr. William Daddy Jr. Um, and folks like him. Um, and and you, you you asked a brilliant question because the so most of our wealth, at least from what the data that I've seen, um, again, our communities is not a particular difference. But if, if, let's look at white folks for example, most of white folks' wealth come from their parents. It's not it is there's two types of um, like wealth that I'm talking about. Um, like the wealth that you get when someone dies who's a parent, right? So the inheritance type wealth you might think of. And then what and then it, so this that's the sort of in, in, in inheritance on death transfer of wealth. And then there's something called uh, in vitro wealth transfers, which is transfers of wealth when they are alive. You just described one, which is where moms is letting you live the crib rent free for many years after you were grown up or mom and dad pay for your school or they give you your first house or they give you your first car or they 
pay bills for you when you need bills to be paid, or they give you free childcare, watch the kids, you know what I'm saying? Um, there, there's constant transfers of wealth going on. Um, and to your to your question, that that contributes to the gap in wealth because there's wealth transfers going on from white generations to the next generations. In our case, as we say, more often than not, the reverse is true. And that $16 trillion gap is the minimum or the the, the, the difference between what the wealth position of, of the average, you know, the, the collective wealth position of, of black folks and white folks. Um, it's important also to, to note that, as I mentioned, that's, that's one of the most important things about wealth. That is, it's the best way to look at the impact of the past on the present. The other important point to make is that we as a people, or the, the I'll, I'll say it like this, the, the, that gap in wealth is a direct result of slavery. Right, now let's, let's, just keep it, let's just keep it real. That that we, we we draw a direct line from the differences in wealth between our people now and the difference in wealth uh, and and what happened in slavery. And for us, and there's a great sort of short paper called um, by Dr. Barry and his his, his team at U, U, and some folks at UCLA. I, I, I think it's what we get wrong about closing the, the wealth gap. That's that's what it's called. What we get wrong about closing the wealth gap. Sometimes we think, you know, education will close the wealth gap. We just get high levels of education that will close the wealth gap with, 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 between black folks and white folks. Um, higher education closes the gap and makes you more wealthy than other black folks, for sure. But um, if you look at, you know, look, look at data coming out of the Federal Reserve, literally over the past six to eight years, let's say, um, right now, this is something that we say in the community town halls that we do, it's, it's kind of, stops people in their tracks. But right now, at least last time we looked, every time we looked really, right now, on average, the average household where the head of the household is black and has a college degree is less wealthy than the average household where the head of the household is white, where that head of the household never finished high school. Yeah. Okay. Right? That's it's, it's a high school dropout. Okay? That's I can say the same thing for employment. And this is kind of, sometimes it doesn't make sense for people too, but it's like, Right now, on average, a household where the head of the household is black and has a full-time job is less wealthy than the average household where the head of the household is white and doesn't have a job at all. It's like, what? How is that even possible? I can say the same thing for business ownership. There are, there are black households where the head of the household has a business, is an entrepreneur, that is less wealthy than a household that is white on average where the head of the household that is not a business owner. I can say the same thing similarly also for, or similarly for housing or, or home to home ownership. Um, what closes the wealth gap to us is reparations. Yeah. yeah. To us. I think, I think that's the, personally, I think that's the only way. Yeah. I only said because like you said, um, especially with the circumstances we're faced in, without, and like, I know people get hung up on the conversation, but that is the most important part, you know, like, the fact that, like I said, I don't know, I don't, I can just speak for myself. Like when I turned 18, my grandpa looked me dead in my face and said, either you got to move out or your mama got to move out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's like at 18 where it's like, I just got out of high school. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. I have to figure out life pretty quick. And yeah. you, put, you put yourself in situations where I don't get to grow and save money financially and figure out or take, if I wanted to go to college, like 
you know, there's a small part of me that want to go to college, but I, it can never, I never, I can never be comfortable with the idea of me going to college and building debt, building debt, knowing that I have rent or knowing that I have to pay to live and go to work. And eat. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I'm so, and that time is a very important time. Actually, if you look at the data on wealth, if I'm not mistaken, Dr. Dr. Daly, if he sees this, he's gonna be in my DMs if I'm getting this wrong for sure. Uh, um, shout out to Dr. Barry, shout out to Kirsten Mullen, his uh, partner who does amazing work. He's a folklorist, he does amazing work, a big, big part of this work too. Um, the time period, I think like the 18 to 24 year old time period is a big part of, it has, I think it's like a bigger part of the importance of like transfers of wealth between the older generation and the younger generation. If you think about that time, I'm thinking for white folks specifically, right, or for non-black folks, non-descendants, let's say, where you got, this would be the time where you may or may not, you know, go to college, as we just sort of saying, right? And think about, you know, not having to, to take on a whole bunch of financial debt, you know, where you got, where, you, where your parents can write you a check, you know, or write you part of a check, you know, or at least lessen the load. Um, think about that time where, you, you know, and for us, we gotta leave. You said we gotta leave the crib, you know what I'm saying? I was told that too, like 18, you out of here. You know what I'm saying? Like, you out of here, like, you, you gotta go. You know, like that's that's when you that's when you leave the house, that's when you leave the nest. But in other communities, specifically non-descendant communities, and I'm talking to my white folks, you know, I think you, you gave an example, you know, we got people who are and, and this it's not a bad thing either. Like I feel like that is what you're supposed to be doing as a parent, right? Like that's part of what you're supposed to be doing. Like uh, it's not a it's not it's not not a bad thing. I wish more of us had that uh, as a people and and that those are, and, but there are real dollar amounts assigned to those types of benefits and gifts. Some of the data that I've seen, where there are sort of there 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 been surveys done. Um, particularly, I'm trying to give citations here, so it's so it's, it's right. Uh, there, there's a there used to be a, a project out of UCLA, not, sorry, not UCLA, Duke University, and other places. But Duke was one of them. Um, I think it was called. Uh, um, it, it was it was a project looking at wealth among people. Right? Uh, I forget the name of the project. It was out of Duke. It was run by Thomas Sh Shapiro, who was the, the person who coined the term wealth gap. It was a white guy. Uh, Thomas Shapiro. He has a book called um, I think it's called Black Wealth, White Wealth. Um, and in some of that work that he. Yeah, I, I think the project was called the National Assets Scorecard on Communities of Color, some, something like that. It's kind of, kind of coming to my head now. Uh, and he looked at, you know, how do people self-report their wealth and how they got it? And one thing that was interesting was that some of the findings said that, like, if you asked white folks on average, you know, they wouldn't report these as wealth transfers. Like, the fact that mom and pops, you know, like, I'm living in my mom's and my pop's house. And it was their pop's house before that. Um, they, people don't report that as well. They they don't see those as gifts. They said that's what they're supposed to be doing. Um, right now, at least from the data that I've seen from Shapiro and his team, up to 25% of all white households can trace their home back to the homestead act in the 1800s. So about one out of every four white households you see can trace that home back to transfers of that home back into the 1800s in the homestead act. That's that's the at least the point that I was thinking. And we can, you know, I don't want to harp on this point too too long, but 
Well, I just wanted to clarify that because I, I, hear, I do hear you what you're saying. For me in this conversation, what's important is that like our narrative as black people is not siloed into one experience or yeah. one perspective, especially as it relates to how we've experienced wealth. You know, so like, you know, I, like I said, my, my family's very middle class though. We're not very high up in the, you know, socioeconomic ladder. But when you talk about the, the transfer of wealth, my grandpa on my father's side passed away, I believe in about 2020, 2019. Rest in peace. Rest in peace, Grandpa Marvin. He had two houses and they sold both of those houses. And that wealth, I mean, I guess transferred to my dad. I don't know really what happened with the rest of that. Also paid for like his health, my, my grandpa's health um, bills and things like that. Because mm. he was very sick when he passed and um, he needed like senior housing because his memory was failing, his body was failing. But um, I think it's really important in this conversation for me that, you know, yeah, all of the narratives are on the table, or at least for listeners that they recognize that for us. We even if the, not even if with the numbers, there's still more to our story than the numbers tell. Yeah, you know. I, I guess that's the point that I was making is that even though and I'll say this because my great grandmother passed away from shelter, and the thing about the, the the point that I'm the point that I'm the reason I'm poking the bear in this way is because even though it's true that my my grandpa RC and my great grandma were at the foresight to buy up the block basically and maintain that up until their, their passing um, and be able to give that to their kids. I do understand that, you know, that next generation did not do the best with that. And it, like I said, because it was like, even though like my grandma and my grandpa had that mentality, the overall mentality, even when they had kids, was not that. Like you know, like when I see my my uncles and my great my grandmas and stuff like that, they want to um, you know just do away with the property and immediately receive the money, but not to further you know not to further the next generation, but to be okay with what they have right now. Mm -hmm. And that's that's something that's very very, very like real. like real to our community specifically, mm -hmm. and not understanding that like. It's so dope to see like my grandparents had that foresight like this is for you know the kids that I might not ever see and then but we also but understand that there's also a mentality in our community and interpersonally in, in families where some people don't agree with that same vision yeah and well, let me say one thing too on this because I think it's important to make it know into that think about the times where we as a community have built wealth and it was destroyed right and we got the Black Wall Street's example is probably a, a hundred Tulsa Black Wall Street example right, mm -hmm. right. there's versions of that here in California think about Allensworth yeah. right where you know I had the, the privilege and the blessing of visiting what is now the state park of Allensworth mm -hmm. um, last September and looking at the living I, I don't want to call them relics but like I don't know if relics is the right word but like the black church there, the black library there, the black school there, the black hotel that's there, the black home that was built, the black barbershop that was built, you know, in the so it's like a museum almost, right? Um, think about, you know, and also think about, you know, I think at a certain point in the, you know, within 40 years of the end of slavery, our people had accumulated, you know, 20 million acres of land, um, you know, to all, all land to have it. 
take and destroy, you know, our, our, as, as a people building wealth for other communities, specifically our government, is a threat. It's a, it's a, it's a threat. I think part of that is why there's such a, uh, I don't know, if, I, I would call it negative in some ways, but sort of a visceral reaction to the direct cash payments. Yeah. Part of like, the direct compensation. Like people are like, that's the one part that people, I've seen personally find people who are not descendants find the most controversial and even that's the most thing that even I've heard descendants talk about as sort of the most controversial part too like you know and I've been telling black, people, black folks this is not the time to be saying you don't want money yeah. okay this is not the time to be saying I've never heard black folks say they don't want money ever yeah. in my life this is not the time to be saying you don't want no money give me something else yeah, exactly. you know um, but I just want to raise the point that when we have built wealth as a people We've had it taken away and destroyed and stolen. I feel like that's kind of what happened with that generation, that, that transfer of wealth, because if you think about it, like our grandparents, you know, they did the Great Migration and accumulated wealth, like some, many through the military, to be honest. Yeah. Many through the military, right? But then you had the, um, you know, the, 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 uh, war on crack or the crack epidemic which really did a number on our people in the 80s and the 90s that time where that you know the 60s those who were in the 60s and 70s building up their wealth building up their you know time for retirement a lot of like i would say either people from that generation got lost in that or else children of those people got lost in that and so us now who are children of that generation to an extent large extent we lost that communication and that and that connection to a large extent. We, we, we lost a whole generation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, no, yeah. Right? Like, I mean, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm a little older than y'all. I'm a, I'm a 80s baby. You know what I'm saying? I was born in the, in the, in the, in the early 80s. So, like, you know, I remember, like, as a kid, kicking crack files out. Like, you know what I'm saying? I remember walking home from school and, and, and it's a regular thing and the guy is smoking crack. Like, I, I know what crack smells like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I know what it smells like. It's an unmistakable, you know what I'm saying? Like, smell, I know, like, walking through the crack smoke on my way upstairs home on a regular basis. I, like, I, I, I saw it. We, we lost a whole generation. Um, and that wasn't, you know, you know, that was intentional to it. It's the same with conspiracy yeah. theory. Yeah. We know that the parts of our government that opened up cocaine and crack lanes into South LA, you know, and in exchange for other stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, so that was intentional, and, that, and you're, you're absolutely right that that had a. I mean, that is, and then on top of that, then they started to, you know, mass incarcerate us because of that shit too. Right. Yeah. So I think that's a bigger conversation. Like to bring it back to reparations, like this is just shows like some of the economic trauma that has happened. Yeah. You know, on all sides of the front, yeah. which is why, at least when I think of reparations, I, I understand the there's like the blatant, you know, Jim Crow slavery. But like you said, the it's the stuff that's a little bit more like underhanded. Like you said, the when you think of like crack epidemic, you think about you know like the act to get for welfare and like removing the father out of the house, like mm-hmm. all these different things. Like and people can disguise it as it wasn't. Oh, that wasn't the intention. Other people had the same opportunity. They didn't. It was like let's be real about like you said, it's a person, a person with a job, a person with a job has less wealth than a person, a white man without a job. That's crazy. That's crazy. And you're right too that the 
and this is this is directly related to reparations. The case that the state reparations task force in California have made successfully, I would argue, is that reparations are for slavery and the things that came after slavery. The impact of those things on the descendants of slavery. Right? So it's what I think one of the task force members, Dr. Amos Brown, Reverend Dr. Reverend Amos Brown, who he's one, he's the vice chair of the state reparations task force in California. Literally, literally one of Dr. King's students. He's literally one of the 16 students that Dr. King taught. Um, literally, Dr. King touched him. Like, like literally, right? So whenever I see him, I hug him, I touch him. I'm like, I'm touching somebody that Dr. King touched. Yeah. You know, you know um, literally was driven to school by Megger Evers. Like, wow. Literally was in the car with Megger Evers, like being driven to school. Um, so, you know, and he calls it the scene of the crime. So slavery is the scene of the crime, like, yeah. right? Uh, and then it's the thing that came after slavery is the racial terror, you know, here. And I'm speaking specifically about here in California. The racial terror was crazy. There was a period of time where the KKK did more meetings here in California than they did into Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. Um, that's in the 1920s. Um, you know, it's the political um, disenfranchisement, right? And we, I mean, you know, there's, there's stories, and we've seen this in the state of racist task forces reports, you know, where, you know, we were, we were being shot to death on voting lines. We were literally being shot and killed to death while voting. Um, it's the harms to us in housing, education, and, and to, to our health, what the task force calls the pathologizing of the black family, um, theft of our cultural and intellectual property, stolen labor and hindered opportunity, uh, the wealth gap, environmental harms. Um, I mean, the, the list goes on, and it's all that as a mass incarceration. Right on, right on, right, right. It, and like, there's something like the Henrietta Lacks, where it's like, right. this was a woman who you were literally abusing, and she, through her own body, created modern day science. Right. Basically. Right. Um, it's it's all of it's all of that is why reparations are due because it's and we we were just sort of talking about a little bit earlier you know the mass incarceration part of it too right where you know um, and I'm very fortunate to again uh, as part of my work with ARC the anti-recidivism code I'm very very fortunate and blessed to be able to to work daily to help end mass incarceration. I was telling y'all earlier, I, I am, on a daily basis, I work with brothers and sisters, people generally who are formerly incarcerated, people who have done, who spend more time in prison than out of prison in their lives. Um, I, I'm, I'm, on a daily basis, you know, two of the interns that work with me right now are, you know, kids under 30 who, you know, went to jail or, you know, you know as kids, and did yeah. 10 years, 11 years. Um, I'm working with a young man right now um, who's out here in the Sacramento area who, 20, 29 years old, did 11 years in prison. So, he be, so you know, like he, he you know, uh, I, I am very fortunate to work with a brother named Samuel the Daniel Brown, um, who did 24 years in prison. Uh, he's back out now, he's, he's going for almost two years. Shout out, shout out, shout out to Sam. Uh, he, yeah, I actually did his podcast last week. He had a podcast called Tales from the Plantation Nation. Um, he is the original author of what is now called Assembly Constitutional Amendment 8, with Assembly Constitutional Amendment 3 when he wrote it in his cell um, after being forced to work in prison, told if he didn't go to work inside the prison, he wasn't coming home one time, okay? uh, which is legally allowed because our Constitution at the state level has that comment in it somewhere. It says something like, um, slavery is prohibited, period. Involuntary servitude is prohibited, comma, except as punishment for a crime. 
that is our state's version of the 13th Amendment. Y'all saw that movie 13, right? That's our, California has a version of that too. And that allows what we call legalized constitutional slavery in our state prisons right now. That is literally from the slavery era. That was literally a way, a loophole put in to, to help allow for slavery by another name. So the mass incarceration piece is, is a part of it. And it's not, it's, it's all of those things and their impact currently today on the living descendants of those things. Um, that's why we're very struggling. Yeah. So Ali got some questions, some more questions, you know, but we're here about an hour and 50 minutes in. Okay, so right on, I yeah. kind of want to get into it some more. Okay, yeah. Um, unfortunately, it's a special podcast, that, um, special topic, so hopefully folks will be down if we go a little longer than normal. Yeah, it's not, it's not an issue. I just, you know, I was going to be yeah, no, time. I was going to actually ask for a time check, too. So, a um, couple things I wanted. I have a couple of other, I think, important questions to ask you. Um, and one is, I guess, on the top, on the line of impact, as well as um, potential. So, I know one popular... One popular, I guess, argument against reparations is it's going to impact us economically to like too negatively, like we mm. can't afford them. Yeah. <laughs> so my question is, what do you? What's your thoughts on that argument? Is that a popular argument that is still in existence? And um, you know, would it really put us in a financial hold, chokehold as a nation? Oh, I love that question. Yeah, I, I love, I, I love that question. You mentioned earlier California is the fifth largest economy on planet Earth. I think now it's the fourth. So we're going into it. Yeah. So California, the state, has our state's economy. We do more business and economics than every other country in the world, with the exception of three. One of those three is our country, too. I want to separate the question a little bit. Can we afford it? And is it popular to, to say, do we hear popularly that? this will be harmful to our economy and therefore can't afford it or shouldn't afford it. Uh, can we afford it? My answer is yes, we can. Uh, as we just sort of said in California, I think really we can afford whatever we want if we want to as a, as a state. It's just about do we have the will to afford it. So I would say that. But to the, the question of you know, what will be the economic impact, we make the case that this will be one of the biggest boosts to our economy in history, we are literally investing and reinvesting in our people. So, not like we're giving the money to a foreign country or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And this is a, like we do. Like right. like we do, right? It's not like we, it's not like <laughs> I'm gonna say some country names, all right? But like, it's not like we we are citizens of this country. Like, this is going and first of all, this is our money anyway. So let's just start with it. This is our money. Our money you're giving back to us, right? The economy, this fifth largest, fourth largest economy in the planet, are because of us, and this most prosperous economy in world history, which we call the U.S. government, is because of us. It would not be this because of us, you know. In the the uh, the in 1860, I think it was the the net market value of uh, just our bodies was worth more than every railroad, bank, and manufacturing plant combined. Right? We, we were literally the financial engine of this country. It would not be this wealth in this country without us. So, 
Especially how absolutely. how young America is. Absolutely. To be an economic power, like, that's only because there was a large unpaid right. workforce for hundreds of, of years. How to keep mm-hmm. hundreds of years, right? I mean, a lot of folks watching this right now, if you're fortunate enough to be employed, you know, if you want to be employed, think about the fact that you, you know, you went to work today or you're going to work today, or maybe you're at work right now, and you expecting a paycheck at the end of the week or at the end of the next week or something like that. How would you feel if you didn't get that paycheck didn't come? Right? Now imagine, uh, uh, okay, another week happened and you don't get paid, but you still work. And then another week, then a month, a couple months, a year, you don't get no pay. Five years, ten years, a hundred years, two hundred years, two hundred fifty-six years. Not just you, your kids, and your kids' kids, and your kids' kids' kids, kids, all that. Um, so. There would not be the wealth in this country without us. To the question, you know, yes, it's popular that we hear that this will hurt us as a, as a country economically. I take the opposite position. This would be the best thing we could do for our country. The best thing economically we could do for our country is to pay reparations to the descendants. And I don't think it, it's, it's hard to see how it, that would be the case. Again, it's not like we're some foreign nation. It's just it's. You're redirecting already existing dollars to a, pop, a part of the population who's going to then. It's not like we're going to just, what are we going to do with the reparations, right? We're not going to, uh, I mean, people have a choice to do whatever they want, but we're not, I don't I don't think we're going to go start another country, <laughs> yeah. right? I don't think we're going to, I don't, I don't, I mean, if people want to do that, might, cool, right? Might, go ahead, go some might, but not all of us. I don't think, right? I, I, don't, I don't want to do that. I want to. Grow businesses. I want to yeah. make this wealth generational. I want it to be for the, for the you know for the family. So, so this would be helpful to our economy. Uh, but it is one of the more popular things that we hear. One that we can't afford it. I think it's just that bad. I think that argument is so ignorant, especially like I'm from Fresno. You know, they they presented the you know the budget for next year, and in the budget they upped the you know the police police budget mm-hmm. so like how do how can we find <laughs> ways to up police budgets and you know government budgets and but uh, up budgets for shit that we find important military they, budget yeah but when it comes down to something like this where's the, where's the money gonna come yeah, from yeah, just exactly like every other budget yeah. Yeah. cut some shit out mm-hmm. and find you it. redirect it yeah, yeah. It. <laughs> I, it. I always think that it's interesting as a country we spend more money on war or like defense than we do on peace mm-hmm. and Privilege and blessing and honor 
to work with some of the living descendants of those ones that you can say in California every single day. We, we work with those folks. So if you don't believe us, you can let you talk to their talk, talk to their living relatives, their living descendants. Uh, I actually had the, the blessing and honor to visit some of the grave and burial sites of some of those who were enslaved in the, in the state of California. It literally says on their, in their tombstone, enslaved, born enslaved. Uh, this is in Coloma, California, so not too far from here. Um, so that's one thing I want to debunk right there. There was slavery in California. That's one argument that we hear against reparations in California. Um, one other argument that we hear a lot too is, you know, I think we, we just sort of talked about one, you know, we, we can't afford it or it's gonna hurt the economy, right? We just sort of debunk those. I think we hear a lot too that, you know, we hear, <laughs> we hear a lot of shit out here, but we, but I think one thing that we do hear a lot often is that this is, we're taking money away from people who didn't have nothing to do with slavery and giving it to people who were never slaves themselves. Come on, right? Um, first of all, we're not taking money away from people. This is the claim against the government itself. The, the state and the national government itself. So nobody's asked, I haven't heard nobody ask to come out their own pockets, their own bank account. Uh, it's not what's happening, right? That's not what we- We're we asking for people to pay taxes towards it? Ah, so that's, a, that's what we hear too. Right, so that's- <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, we, hear, we hear that too well. So that's what we hear in response. Well, you know, it's our tax money. That's my money. And I've been thinking a lot about that too. Um, one, I'm a taxpayer also. <laughs> okay. And I want the reparations to happen. Okay. Two, similar to what we just said, this is a reinvestment of money that's already ours. That's already our money. Okay. And three, this is gonna be an unpopular opinion, but once the government got your money, it's not yours no more. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, you know, it, once the government take the money out your check it's not yours personally anymore. It now belongs to the government, to the collective. I know we, I, I, and this is part of our Americanness, and I be like this too sometimes, I don't want my tax dollars going to this or that or the third. And I have every right to be like that as American, and, I'm, and that's part of it. And it's also true at the same time that once the money is in the government hands, it's the government's money. So we're not taking money away from people who want slave owners to give to people who weren't slaves. The government is paying back a debt that it owes. That's one thing. So that's one thing that we hear a lot too. I think there's there's a lot more we you know we hear I think <laughs> we hear a lot of weird shit. You know? I think a point that you that you touch on now I, I want to kind of drive it home because I think people don't understand that is that when you you know we think about investing in the government as far as like military arms and things like that when we do that we do that with no return. To, to invest right. in black communities, specifically communities that were affected economically, and they, like I said, to, to then make them a, a driver of new wealth. Like That's you said, push us forward, man. Like how, how, how can you not see the long-winded benefit in that? Come on, everybody, no matter what your race, ancestry is, ethnicity is, that is good for this is this will be good for the country. It's a point that we make. We have we got we got hashtags on this reparations. Good for California. Good for America. Okay. That's the that's the line that we that's the line that we push because it's good for California. It's good for America. You know it, it, it is very short sighted. Like the way, like the way that you framed it. It's short sighted to to not see how this is good for 
everybody. Now, I'm going to be working primarily because I'm already doing it, working primarily to build and, and, and invest my operations in black descended entrepreneurship and right because I'm already doing that. But not everybody's going to do that. A lot of people going, you know, going, going, use the money to do whatever they want to do, and that economic benefit is going to be for a lot of different people too. So, what, not to mention, we you, you talked about it earlier with homelessness. Yeah, you might feel like, oh, what if they take the money and spend on something they enjoy? There's a lot of black people who all they do, like I said, I got a, I got a step uh, resting, not resting peace. What am I talking about? I got a, I got a, my mom's ex-husband. He has literally been working his whole life. Like, doesn't take vacation, doesn't do any of that. I can, I can only imagine like him getting this opportunity to be like, you know what? I'm a, <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I can go take that vacation and have peace of mind. And be, and, and this is a, this is a, so to your to your question. This is something that we hear a lot too. If y'all get this money, y'all just going blow it. Uh, one thing we, we say, okay, well listen, if, if you if you owe me money, <laughs> it's none of your damn business what I do with the money. Right? It's my money. I have everybody to do whatever I want with the money. But one of the things that we ask, so we normally we actually have one of these coming up on June twenty fourth in Marin City. We host community listening sessions on reparations. We hosted ten last year. We up on you know, doing something doing something this year too. One of the questions that we ask in the community listening sessions. So these are events where we ask people from the community to come and and share share with us on some things on reparations. The first thing we usually ask is, is tell us your origin story. Like, how, why and when did your black family come to California? So you get a sense of how, how, you, how you got here. The second thing we ask is, talk, talk to us about an experience where you understand that you were treated bad because of your race or your ethnicity as a black person. So share a story with us. Third thing we ask is, what types of repair do you want for the harm that you have experienced personally? What, what should the reparations be for you personally? The fourth thing we ask is, we do sort of a thought experiment. We say, okay, well, I'm gonna snap my fingers, boom. We got reparations now. Um, what we say, first we say, close your eyes. Now I snap my fingers, boom. So, okay, now we got reparations, open your eyes. Go to the window, open the window. What does it smell like? What does it look like? What's different about us as a people after reparations to you? The fifth thing we ask people to share on is, what are you going to do with your reparations? We get some of the most amazing ideas, some of the most amazing things people say, I'm going to start this kind of business. I'm going to, you know, set my kids up for life. I'm going to come, I'm, a, I'm, going, to, I'm going to group up with another, with some other groups of us and we're going to, we're going to take a piece of ours. We, each one of us going to put a 10% together and then we're going to combine it and start this. Uh, I talked to a sister, we was at, we was giving out flyers, this wasn't our listening session, but we was giving out reparations flyers um, at some of the um, public transportation, light rail stations in Sacramento a few weeks back. And the sister was like, I'm going to start an organization to get people off the streets who's unhoused. Like, this is what people saying that they're going to do with their reparations. Yeah. Right? So, so, yeah. Can I interrupt you then? Sure, Just, sure. Again, I know we're taking it home, but, um, so if community listening sessions are one way people can get involved yeah. in reparations, like, are there any other things you suggest? There's, yeah, listening session sessions. There's obviously voting for politicians who are for reparations. <laughs> what else? What are like practical forms of activism that listeners can kind of 
engaged in help manifest and actualize reparations in this lifetime? Yeah. If there is there anything. I love that question. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, I think the first thing that I, we always encourage folks to, to do because your activism, your your getting involvementism really is a function of your education and awareness. So we say the first thing we want people to do is get connected to and make a make, make a personal commitment today to stay informed. And you can do that in, in a number of ways. We help you with that um, at our website, uh, cjec-official.org. We have a free monthly California Reparations newsletter that you can sign up for right now. We have a, a free text message system updates that give you text message updates on California reparations. You can sign up for that right now. We also have an opportunity, we, there's, a, there's a, a box to check that says, I want to volunteer, please do that too. Um, but the, but the, the first thing we have folks to do is make a personal commitment today to stay informed with current and accurate information. Um, as you mentioned also, what people can do, and or it's something else that we say, this is sort of in the first sort of paragraph of all of our newsletters, we say, Make it a point today to put reparations in your conversations. So next time you're with your family, there's gonna be Juneteenth going on this weekend. Next time you, 4th of July coming up after that, okay. say the word reparations somewhere in the comment. Find a space to say the word reparations somewhere. Yeah, okay. or share this podcast. Right, share, come on, share, the, share this share podcast this right here. And and bring that, and bring make make a point to raise the word reparations in your, in your conversations. And then as you mentioned, there's community listening sessions that we that we host on a regular basis, community town halls. We did three town halls last weekend, two in the Sacramento area, one virtual to the LA County Public Library. So there are community town halls you can be a part of. There are obviously also reparations task force hearings still going on. Also, there's a lot people can do to get in, involved. Politically though, yeah, we are moving into the place where we want people to start checking the temperature of their state assembly person and their state senator. So right now, first thing you need to do is know who your state assembly person is. Know who your state assembly person is. Know, your, know, know, know who your state senator is. Uh, Google who is my state assembly person, who is my state assembly member in California. Google that. What's going to come up is a link to a website where you put your address or your zip code in and it tell you who represents you. These are the people who are going to have a vote on reparations next year. We need 21 senators to, to say yes next year. We need 41 assembly members to say yes next year. We need one governor to say yes to reparations next year. So we, that's our reparations equation. We say it all the time, 21 plus 41 plus one. That's how we get our pieces next year. And you can help do that by knowing who your people are and then checking with them and saying, do you support reparations? And if you don't, why should I vote for you next year in this election year? Why should I support you if you don't support me? I got a closing question. And Chris talked about at the beginning how we've been through all these different eras, right, of our black history. And normally they're described by honestly the atrocities yeah. that we've experienced. So I'm proposing this really for all of us, but I'm sorry, I want to pass it to you first. Like, if you could give this era of black history a name off the top of your head, could you? what would you call it? And same for you, Chris. What would you call it? What would you call this time for black history? Uh, I mean, black I, history? In black history. I'm called the Renaissance. Mm. The Renaissance. Mm. I like that. Black Renaissance. Yeah. We are in the 20s, too. The, the 2
Yeah. yeah. That was good. Um, I will call this the reparations generation, the reparations era. Because um, I'm very confident we're going to get reparations here at the state level for sure. Um, in all that time. So I will call this the reparations era. I like it. Reparations and restoration era. Because it's like getting the reparations and restoring ourselves yes. to, you know, a state of equilibrium, a state of equity, you know, a state of equality and basic dignity. So yeah, that's those are all my questions, Chris. Thank you so much. That is all mine. What about you? Hey. Any questions? No, I was really just I was really just thinking about the conversation altogether, just. Like you said, kind of being happy to be this moment. You know, like you said, living in, living in history. The reason why I call it the Renaissance is just more to think about everything holistically, like kind of like what you were talking about earlier as well, about to know to know how the deck was stacked against black people altogether. And to see, you know, we got, I live in the generation where I've seen some of the first black billionaires. You know self-made and then also to live you know see so many you know you got people like pinky cole you know killer mikey all these different like black entrepreneur business people who not only take the money for themselves but also give back and are kind of trying to push the whole community forward you know that's why i say like for me it's at least living in an era where i feel like Black people as a as a group is gonna really really level up, you know, you know. Uh, I feel like obviously there's still work to be done, and I don't want to speak too soon, but like with reparations around the corner, um, and just the men the mindset that I see a lot of young people having, young black people having, I, I just feel like this next this next wave of black people is gonna really be some different. Especially, I can only you know I, I see what, I, I see what was made. From people who had nothing, and now we live in—we're going to be living in a generation where people can have that backing to truly do, you know, what's on their heart, what you know, what God put in their heart to do, you know. And that's just how I feel about it. Honestly. I love that. We can put it all together. The Black Renaissance. I think it's colon <laughs> a time <laughs> of. Restoration and reparations. All three. I like I it. That's collaborative name for this time. <laughs> I just think it's important for black people to really keep in mind that we are in black history in the very moment we are every as each moment passes, we're a part of the black history that one day people are going to be talking about. And so to be an active part of that history making, um, you know, don't let it ju don't just be on autopilot through this time, be active and be involved, engaged, and concerned. So, anyway, yeah, that, those are my last words. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, oh, it's no. not like it's not like you guys have time. I mean, I was, yeah, I mean, I was, like, that's that's just where I'm, that's just where my head is at. Especially when I think about like, to you know, for people who are skeptical, skeptical about, oh, you know, they're saying they're gonna get reparations to people and they're gonna do good. Well, you know, you lack faith. Just take a step back, and we just literally came out of an era of, you know, coronavirus where these ED, EDD checks were handed out, and a lot of people started some lucrative businesses off EDD checks, having only two things 
time and money, the things that mm. black people have been robbed for, robbed for the longest. Yeah. So if we saw, we saw when people had nothing but time, and these ED checks came in, people weren't, yeah, there was some people fucking around, but for the most part, a lot of people got productive. A lot of people did some things that they always wanted to do. Yeah. A lot of people had the time to learn the skills to do something they wanted to do. So it's it's not a reach for me to think that I don't care whatever percentage you want to play around with. It's not it's it's great to know that there's going to be a, a, a large amount of black people who are going to get this money and have the of time and ability to gain the skills necessary and then actually have the resources to act on that. But like we haven't had in the past. If you like I said, look at me. I'm to do this the podcast that we're doing. I also work forty hours a week. I can't imagine. Like I had this idea, and then I also had a check that could subsidize me to work twenty hours. That's all you do. <laughs> yeah, I could actually focus on it and create something, not be, you know, half pregnant. So I'm really happy with what's going on. <laughs> one foot in the matrix, one foot out. Right. For a lot of us. Right for you, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. You got any closing thoughts, personally? I just want to thank y'all. I want to to appreciate y'all. I appreciate the audience too. I want to shout out to everybody that's watching. And I want to thank both of y'all. Real, real, real talk. Pardon my potty mouth. I know I said the F word a few times. (laughs) You know, I want to. I I want to mess up the monetization. You know what I'm saying? Oh, (laughs) monetization. uh, You know, we're working towards that, but we're not there yet. But I do want to. I do want to thank y'all. I want to appreciate y'all. I want to give y'all flowers. I, I do this normally before I even talk to. Folks, uh, and, I, and I should have said at the beginning, but I want to appreciate y'all because every single person that I get to work with, to me, is an honor, it's a privilege. I'm always humbled by working with anybody, especially on this. And you two are part of the reason why we're going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Just, I'm just keeping it real with you. Part of the reason why we're going to be successful is because of the work that you two are doing here now, but also after this, too, and before, too. Yeah. Real, 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 real talk. And you, you, you two are an example, I think, of what is possible and what we're capable of and really what we got inside us as a people, you know, in your, in your own rights, you know what I'm saying? I know you for a little bit longer, um, but, like, I can really tell, like, you know, we are special people. And you two are special people. Real talk. And I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not capping here. Um, so I want to appreciate you both. I want to encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. Let me know in there. I, I can do this. Su- su- support it. You know, I got a, I got a, I got a marketing platform. I'm definitely happy to come back to. Yeah, I didn't even get through all my questions. Right on. Okay. Right on. Well, I, I, I just want to get more into like, the nitty gritty of some of the conversation because you know I'm trying to stay on the topic of, you know, you know, uh, reparations and understanding yeah. why it's so important. But you know, there's a lot. Like I said, I have a lot of. I'm a black man. I got a lot of questions as, oh, a, yeah. black, as a black man that I want to explore. And they don't always, you know, fit around the context of reparations. A lot going on. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to come back. <laughs> yeah, happy to come back. Especially if all we're asking is for people to be committed to being informed, like staying informed. I feel like that could be the, the least that I could we could do too. You know, do yes. another follow up and help people stay informed. Yeah, 100%. That would be like very, very helpful. June 29th. June 29th. Yep. June 29th. June 29th. Task Force is here in Sacramento, in the Sacramento area. Come out, you know what I'm saying? It's gonna be the four house, the Secretary of State, more likely is gonna be there. You'll be able to meet Dr. Weber. Uh, well, I, I'm expecting her, I can't say for sure she'll be there. But it's in her building, 
and she's the author of the creative task force itself for every reason. So I'm expecting how they did. Um, you know, yeah, I, I, I expected the attorney general to be there also. Um, I don't have any support now that I expect. You know, so that, you know, but you're going to be there. That's what's really important. We're going to be there. That's one www.cjec-official.org cjecofficial at gmail.com everything at cjecofficial on the social medias follow us right now look at what we're doing connect what we're doing again go to the website sign up for the newsletter sign up for the text message our face check the box saying you want to volunteer yep and like and subscribe to uh Keep in touch. Right here. Yeah. Right here. Who else bringing you this kind of content right here? Exactly. Mm -hmm. right. Make sure you guys rewatch this. Right. Also rewatch the last. Share it. If you guys missed it, watch the last episode as well. Yeah. Right on. Go see <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys.
guys. I'll catch you on the next one, huh? Yeah. Peace.